When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 18, The Three Pillars. In the aftermath of Tiglath Pileser III's Levantine campaign in 738 BC, Phoenician power, culture, and identity were split between two poles the ancient port cities of Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre, and their new North African colony of Carthage. The Levantine Phoenicians found themselves effectively under Assyrian occupation, with their ships and crews commandeered to support Assyrian campaigns, and any independence existing in name only. The city of Tyre, for example, was never formally incorporated into any of the three Phoenician provinces of Assyria, since Neo-Assyrian rulers understood that Tyre's strong ties to its overseas colonies centered on the figure of its king. Regardless of any nuanced political arrangements, Phoenician commercial activity was now under direct Assyrian control, including the strict enforcement of a trade embargo against Assyria's new enemy, Egypt. In contrast, the Phoenician colony of Carthage was still a free and growing maritime power. Along the distant North African coast, the power of Assyria was felt only indirectly, through a general increase in the demand for Mediterranean trade goods. With its population bolstered by Levantine refugees and its trade networks firmly established, Carthage was well-positioned to profit handsomely from the new state of affairs. In the latter half of the 8th century BC, Phoenician colonial expansion was in full swing. On the important island of Sardinia, the Phoenicians established the new colonies of Sulcus, Tharos, and Nora. These settlements reflected typical Phoenician siding, defensible from the land and accessible by sea. From here, the Phoenicians engaged in trade with the local Nuragic population to obtain metal ore and agricultural produce from the interior. In contrast to the mixed ethnicity of Santembania, these new Sardinian outposts were purely Phoenician ventures. Further afield, after securing a lucrative metal trade with Tartessus in southern Spain, the Phoenicians began to push westward beyond the Pillars of Hercules, the ancient name for the Straits of Gibraltar, and from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. Here, beyond the edge of the known world, the Phoenicians established the colonies of Lyxus and Mogador on the west coast of what is now Morocco, and the city of Gades, modern Cadiz, on the southwest coast of Spain. 
Chosen for its deep natural harbor and its location opposite the mouth of the Guadalete River, Gadiz would soon become the main transport hub for Phoenician trade in the western Mediterranean. Incidentally, Cadiz is also considered the oldest continuously inhabited city in Spain, if not the whole of southwestern Europe. The wealth of Gadiz came mostly from the Spanish Silver Mountain. Vast amounts of metal ore floated downriver from silver mines in the interior. The colony's prosperity was reflected in both its rapid growth and in the construction of elaborate public architecture. The city's centerpiece, a temple to the Tyrian city god Melkart, supposedly held an olive tree made of solid gold bearing fruit made of emeralds. It was here that Phoenician sacred rites were performed, oaths were sworn, and citizens were reminded of their connections to their Levantine homeland. The wealth of Gaudis also permitted the Phoenicians to establish several additional colonies along the southern coast of Spain, some of which expanded their activities from trade into manufacture and also became agriculturally self-sufficient. Gaudis was hardly alone in scale or prosperity. Carthage, in the latter half of the 8th century BC, was a bustling urban center, with a population approaching 30,000. In contrast to the colonies of Spain, the wealth of Carthage derived not from ore extraction, but from trade. From its beginnings, the colony was managed by a ruling council of Phoenician nobles. Typically, the most wealthy and powerful noble would be granted executive power, essentially become king, but only with the ongoing consent of his colleagues. While the city's ties to Tyre remained strong, they often came second to its commercial priorities, including maintaining a strong trading relationship with Egypt, even when Phoenicia was technically forbidden from doing so. Meanwhile, ominous developments were taking place on the nearby island of Sicily. In the early 8th century BC, the Phoenicians had established several colonies on the island, including Panormos, modern Palermo, Solus, and Motia. Toward the end of the 8th century, they found their domination of the island challenged by a veritable slew of colonists arriving from the major cities of Greece. The 8th century had been kind to mainland Greece, and the increased Mediterranean trade, along with increased local agricultural production, had enabled the rise of a number of powerful Greek city-states, or Peleus, including Athens, Corinth, Sparta, and Thebes. But increased wealth was only one factor at play. The second half of the 8th century saw three critical developments in Greece— pillars upon which they would soon build one of the greatest civilizations of the classical world. The first was a sense of common Greek identity, greatly fostered by the institution of the Olympic Games and festivals. The first Olympic Games were supposedly held in 776 BC at, you guessed it, Olympia, were dedicated to the god Zeus, and consisted of a single event, a foot race. These games were soon joined by other pan-Greek games, which were scheduled so that there was at least one such gathering each year. Only free-born Greek men were allowed to participate in the events, which soon grew to include boxing, wrestling, and chariot racing. The personal code of the primarily aristocratic competitors, virtue and fame, was inspired by the legends of the Mycenaean warrior kings— 
and the friendly competition served to strengthen ties between rival athletes and their home cities. The Olympic Games were as much about Greek politics, religion, and culture as they were about demonstrating athletic skill. An Olympic truce held during the Games, forbidding Greek cities from warring against one another. Greek leaders would often announce new alliances during the ceremonies, and in times of war, priests would offer sacrifices to the gods for victory. Sculptors and poets would also gather at the festival to display their works to prospective patrons. It was also during this period that Greeks became more consistent in the name they called themselves. In the Iliad and Odyssey, which depict Mycenaean Greek culture, Greeks were referred to variously as Achaeans, Danaeans, and Argives. But by the late 8th century BC, most Greeks had begun to refer to themselves as Hellenes, and differentiated themselves from non-Greeks by referring to the latter as Barbaroi, barbarians, where barbar basically equates to blah blah. In other words, you're not speaking Greek, so I have no idea what you're saying. Moving hand in hand with the forging of a common Greek identity was the restoration of Greek literacy. In the ancient Near East, writing was either hieroglyphic or cuneiform in style, intended to be written and read only by specialists, and used primarily for making lists of goods or recording the deeds of kings. In a novel departure from all previous civilizations, the subject matter of the earliest known Greek writing, mainly found on pottery, was simple poetry. The first lists to be made were not tallies of goods, but instead the winners of Olympic Games. From there, the slow progression can be seen, to lists of magistrates, the codification of laws, and eventually to more complex works on philosophy, history, and a wide variety of other subjects. Thanks to the simplicity of the Greek alphabet, which contained only two dozen characters, common Greeks were able to read and write, which enabled them to share their knowledge and ideas with one another. Before long, this advantage would enable the Greeks to make incredible leaps forward in the arts, the sciences, and in the realm of political thought. We'll delve deeper into these issues, the nature of the Greek polis, and the major Greek cities of the era in future episodes. The third pillar of Greek resurgence, and the first to bring them into direct conflict with foreign powers, was the expansion of the Greek world through aggressive colonization. While the Greeks of Euboea had previously founded the colonies of Almina in coastal Syria and Pithecusa in the Bay of Naples, widespread Greek colonization really kicked into high gear around 750 BC. The first regions targeted were southern Italy and the island of Sicily, which together became known as Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece. The region was attractive due to its fertile land, good harbors, and the lack of any strong regional powers to challenge their independence. Among the better-known colonies of Magna Graecia were Tarentum, Croton, and Sybaris on the Tarentine Gulf of southern Italy, and the Sicilian colony of Syracuse, founded in 734 BC by settlers from Corinth and Tanea. In general, it was the smaller cities that tended to be the most aggressive colonizers. Among the major Greek cities of the age, neither Sparta nor Athens colonized heavily, as both already possessed large domestic territories. 
Colonies also varied in the strength of their ties to their mother cities, with some becoming fully independent, while others continued to be pretty heavily dominated. Either way, at the very least, religious and cultural ties with the home city were usually maintained. Colonists were typically a group of 100 to 200 unmarried men of fighting age. It's unclear whether they sent for Greek women once the colony was established or married locals. Traditionally, the colonists brought fire from their mother city in order to establish a sense of continuity. Groups of colonists were always led by an aristocrat appointed by the home city. His responsibilities included organizing and leading the settlers, planning and laying out the city, distributing the land in equal allotments, establishing the local institutions and how they were to be governed, and selecting the new city's patron deity. The most important features of a colony, Greek or otherwise, were a good harbor, easy defensibility, fertile land, and access to both natural resources and trade routes. Sites meeting all these specifications were obviously rare and highly prized, and it's no wonder that the Greek search for colonies quickly brought them into conflict with the Phoenicians. Over time, a tacit agreement emerged between the two competitors. Phoenicia had already established large colonies and lucrative trade routes focused primarily on the southern and western Mediterranean, and effectively drew a line in the sea protecting these interests from Greek encroachment. In response, the Greeks concentrated their colonization efforts in the northern and eastern Mediterranean, and eventually in the Black Sea region. There were many exceptions to the rule, but in broad terms the pattern held. The central Mediterranean, where these tentative borders met, would remain the area of greatest conflict. As a side note, by around 580 BC, the process of Mediterranean colonization had effectively been halted, mainly due to the fact that all the best spots had already been taken. There were many reasons behind the push for Greek colonization. Demographics certainly played a role. At the time, the Greek mainland was experiencing too much population growth for the available agricultural land, which led to overcrowding, food shortages, and civic unrest. The losing side in class conflicts was sometimes forced into exile, making colonization a necessity. Despite these factors, the primary reason for Greek colonization appears to have been a positive one. The desire of colonists to improve their own fortunes, and those of their mother cities, by establishing trade contacts with other countries and peoples. At the same time, the renewed sense of a shared Greek identity, along with the spread of Greek history and ideas through restored literacy, gave colonists the opportunity to export Greek culture to dozens of new lands. To the north of Magna Graecia, the Etruscans were still the leading civilization in Italy, engaging in trade with both the Phoenicians and the Greeks. Of the two, the Greeks had the greater cultural influence, and Etruscan civilization became more and more Hellenized moving into the 7th century BC. As mentioned previously, the Etruscans were organized into independent states ruled by kings, as opposed to the Italics, who were still organized under chiefs and tribes. Etruscan kingly regalia included a golden crown, a scepter, and a special robe known as a toga palmata. 
Perhaps most important were the fasces, a bundle of whipping rods surrounding a double-bladed axe. Carried by the king's bodyguard, or lictors, the fasces were the primary symbol of Etruscan state power, as they would be later for the Romans, and are the origin of the word fascism. Lying south of Etruria and north of the land claimed for Magna Graecia, the first Italic state, Rome, was off to an eventful start. Early in his reign, the city's legendary founder, Romulus, supposedly enlarged Rome's population by declaring the city a safe haven for outlaws, resulting in a morally suspect and predominantly male citizen body. Given these circumstances, the kidnapping of wives from Rome's closest neighbors, the Sabines, seemed like a pretty solid idea. Strangely, it turned out that the Sabines were fairly touchy about the whole kidnapping our women thing, and Romulus was forced to make amends by both taking a Sabine bride and offering to alternate Rome's kingship with Sabine rulers. Despite leading Roman forces to many victories, Romulus was fairly unpopular on the home front for being a fairly tyrannical ruler. In 716 BC, at the age of 54, he met his end in a suitably ambiguous fashion. While making sacrifices near the Tiber River during a fierce thunderstorm, Romulus was last seen standing amidst a group of Roman nobles, or senators. The official story was that Rome's founder had been assumed into the heavens. His true end was likely, well, far more Roman. Enter Numa Pompilius, a Sabine noble and beneficiary of Rome's earlier pledge of shared kingship. Saddled with ruling an ethnically mixed proto-state, made up in large part of criminals and fugitives, Numa decided a good dose of micromanaging was in order. For the first time, Rome's boundaries were firmly drawn, legitimizing the earlier conquests of Romulus. Within these boundaries, Numa declared some people to be agricultural workers and assigned others to various urban guilds. This approach had the benefits of regulating the population by controlling their day-to-day -day activities, while also ensuring that the critical needs of Roman society were addressed. Numa also looked to the unifying power of religion, establishing a comprehensive series of religious rituals and relocating the Vestal Virgins, celibate priestesses of the local hearth goddess Vesta, from Alba Longa to Rome. Upon their arrival, Numa created the office of chief priest, Pontifex Maximus, to oversee them and began publicly funding their upkeep. This dual regimentation, in the realms of labor and religion, served to tamp down civil strife among the often rambunctious Roman citizenry. Perhaps Numa's most famous legacy was the Temple of Janus, whose doors were open in wartime and closed in peacetime. A Roman pacifist, if you can wrap your head around that, he took great pride in the fact that the doors were never once opened during his long 43-year reign. Of course, after his reign, the doors would rarely ever close again. If you were looking for a perfect name to herald the return to Roman militarism, you could do worse than Tullus Hostilius. A Latin from a noble Roman family, well, as noble as Roman families got at the time, 
Hostilius wasted no time picking a fight with Rome's Etruscan neighbor, the city of Alba Longa. Apparently, both sides agreed to a version of trial by champion, with each using groups of three brothers to represent their interests. The Roman brothers won the contest, and Alba Longa was forced to swear allegiance to Rome. After a later military betrayal, Hostilius had the Alban king, Metius, torn apart between two chariots. The Roman victory was finally sealed with the leveling of Alba Longa, with the exception of its temples, and the intermixing of the Albans with the Roman population. Regardless of its historicity, and remember, pretty much everything from this early period is either oral history or legend, the story of the conquest of Alba Longa served to complete the circle begun with the abandonment of Romulus and Remus, sons of a Vestal Virgin of Alba Longa, along the banks of the Tiber. It also paved the way for the rise of the Etruscan kings who would rule Rome later in the 7th century BC. While Rome is just getting started on its long climb to regional prominence, let's return to the much, much older stage of the Near East and look in on its current dominant empire and unipolar hyperpower, Neo-Assyria. In the aftermath of Sargon II's death by Sumerian arms, he was succeeded to the throne of Assyria by his son and heir, Sennacherib. Like all Neo-Assyrian rulers from this era, Sennacherib became best known by this Hebraic approximation of his true Akkadian name, Sin Aha Ariba, or Sin has replaced my lost brothers. From the outset, Sennacherib had his eye fixed on not the standard Assyrian trifecta of conquest, submission, and tribute, but instead the construction of sculptured palaces and royal monuments. When engaged in such projects, he tended to view any distractions, such as, you know, wars, revolts, and the other baggage of empire, as absolutely infuriating and intolerable. As you might guess, given the nature of Assyrian rule, he was going to be infuriated quite a bit. Abandoning his father's new capital of Dur-Sharukin in 703 BC with barely a backwards glance, Sennacherib relocated the new Assyrian court to their major city and former capital of Nineveh. Once there, he began the construction of what would, over the succeeding decade, grow to become his palace without rival. The same year, he also encountered his first major distraction, in the form of the always infuriating Chaldean usurper, Marduk Apla Adina II. Upon Sargon's death in 705 BC, a local noble named Marduk Zakir Shumi II had taken the opportunity to seize power in Babylon. This new ruler was still opening his moving boxes and setting up his satellite cable when he was overthrown and executed by Marduk Apla Edina II, back from the southern marshes and ready for his second go-around on the throne. Taking a lesson from his earlier defeat, Marduk Apla Edina II intended to broaden his defensive coalition, beyond his Chaldean forces and their Elamite allies, to also encompass local Aramean tribes who had suffered greatly under recent Neo-Assyrian rule. He also wanted to cultivate a new ally, one who had recently defied and provoked the Assyrian Empire and yet still somehow managed to endure, the Kingdom of Judah. 
When we last visited Judah, way back in 735 BC, its king Ahaz had just called for Neo-Assyrian support against a combined Israelite-Aramean threat. In response, Tiglath-Pileser III had brought the hammer down on these two northern kingdoms, and also stripped Judean coffers bare while he was in the neighborhood. Ahaz was not a popular king, apparently coming down on the idolatrous side of the ongoing religious seesaw, and ignored repeated warnings to shape up and fly right by an ongoing parade of buzzkill prophets, including Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. He also sacrificed his own son, Rimon, which was not much of a crowd-pleaser. Despite all this, he apparently died peacefully in his sleep, and was succeeded by his other, non-sacrificed son, Hezekiah, in 716 BC. Hezekiah took the stage with a very new and very pious broom. According to the biblical account, his first action was to repair the doors of the temple and remove the defilements of the sanctuary, a task which apparently took a full 16 days. After purifying the temple, Hezekiah forbade the worship of foreign deities within its confines, making it a Yahweh-only zone. He also made a strong push to abolish idolatry within the entire kingdom by eliminating any competing objects of worship. He even went as far as destroying the bronze serpent, legendarily used by Moses to cure snake bites, since a cult had formed around it. Much like the Assyrians had done with their Temple of Ashara and Asur, but please don't make that comparison in front of him, Hezekiah centralized the worship of the Hebrew god Yahweh within a single temple of their capital of Jerusalem. In terms of formative moments, you'd probably have to rank the Assyrian destruction of the state of Israel in 720 BC pretty high on Hezekiah's list. With spiritual matters addressed, his next priority was the security of his kingdom. He wisely approached this in two ways, by building both physical defenses and regional alliances. The former included the construction of Hezekiah's tunnel, an aqueduct designed to help the Hebrews ride out any prolonged siege, and the aptly named Broad Wall, a massive fortification, 10 feet high and 30 feet thick, surrounding critical portions of Jerusalem. In terms of allies, Hezekiah first looked to Judah's southern neighbor, the kingdom of Egypt. Well aware of the fate that had befallen Israel, he doubtless had significant reservations about Egyptian capability and reliability. But where King Hosea had negotiated with a mere Delta prince, King Hezekiah now dealt with the Nubian pharaoh Shabaka, ruler of a recently unified Egypt. Shabaka was fully on board with Hezekiah's plan to chisel away at Assyrian power by sparking local rebellions. In 712 BC, the two kingdoms backed the Philistine city of Ashdod in its attempt to throw off the Assyrian yoke. This first attempt was costly, since Sargon's forces easily contained the revolt, then converted the kingdom into an Assyrian province. This forced Ashdod's former king, Iamani, to find refuge in Shabaka's Egypt. In 707 BC, Shabaka died and was succeeded to the throne by his nephew, Shabitku, son of the earlier Nubian pharaoh, Pie. 
Shabitku apparently favored a more conciliatory approach and promptly extradited King Iamani back to Assyria. Or, as Sargon put it, Shabitku heard of the might of the gods Assur, Nabu, and Marduk, which I had demonstrated over all lands. He put Iamani in manacles and handcuffs. He had him brought captive into my presence. This had to be a disappointing turn of events for Hezekiah, who nonetheless bided his time and continued to work on Judah's defenses. His patience was finally rewarded two years later. Upon Sargon's death in 705 BC, Hezekiah learned that the Nubian pharaoh had no intention of submitting to his successor, Sennacherib, and took this as a signal to make his own stand. Knowing the fate of Arpad, of Israel, of Damascus, and of Ashdod, it's hard to imagine the amount of faith Hezekiah must have had to finally pull the trigger on this fateful decision. But whatever it took, he apparently had it in spades. Tribute ceased to flow, and the kingdom of Judah formally entered into a state of rebellion against the Neo-Assyrian Empire. For the next two years, Judah held its breath as the new Assyrian king consolidated power and relocated his court from Dar Sharukin to his new capital of Nineveh. In 703 BC, Hezekiah received ambassadors from an unusual quarter, King Marduk Apla Adina II of Babylonia, seeking allies for his freshly launched rebellion. It's uncertain how far these negotiations went before they were overtaken by facts on the ground. Sennacherib the Builder had finally become Sennacherib the Warrior, and was leading Neo-Assyrian forces southward against the rebel Chaldean king. Strictly speaking, Sennacherib had first cut his military teeth the previous year, in a brief conflict with the Anatolian kingdom of Cilicia. The campaign is probably only worth mentioning in that it may have been the first recorded military confrontation between the Assyrians and the resurgent Greeks. We discussed previously that many Greeks, fleeing the ravages of the Bronze Age collapse, had settled along the Ionian coast of Anatolia. This relocation had not necessarily been a peaceful one, and the Greeks had forcibly taken several coastal cities, including Miletus, Ephesus, Samos, and Priene, from their former inhabitants. With this foothold established, the Ionian Greeks slowly began extending their influence eastward along the southern Anatolian coast into the local kingdoms of Lycia, the former Hittite ally known as Lucca, and Pamphylia. They also grew to become the dominant power on the island of Cyprus, at least before they relinquished that control in 708 BC to Sargon II. The kingdom of Cilicia, in southeastern Anatolia, was a Neo-Hittite successor state with a strong Phoenician influence that had recently been unified under its ruling Mopsos dynasty. In 704 BC, the Ionian Greeks encouraged this neighboring kingdom to rebel against Assyria. The precise reason, and whether the Greeks provided actual military support to supplement their encouragement, is unclear. Either way, Neo-Assyrian forces under Sennacherib were easily able to reassert control over Cilicia, and Greek hopes for further Anatolian expansion were curtailed. In 703 BC, perhaps following his father's example, Sennacherib came against Babylonia with two armies, 
one of which assaulted the rebel stronghold of Kish, while the other, led by the Assyrian king, captured the important city of Kutha. Following this victory, Sennacherib recombined his armies at Kish and proceeded to take the city, quash the rebellion, and slaughter all rebel forces. Marduk Apla Adina II once again eluded capture by fleeing into the marshes of southern Babylonia, where he probably had a comfortable mat of reeds with his name on it. In victory, Sennacherib installed a Babylonian noble named Bel-Ibni, who had been raised in the Assyrian court as the new puppet king of Babylonia, which I'm sure will totally, totally work out well for everyone, and led his armies back to Nineveh. A few years later, Sennacherib would finally receive the welcome news that Marduk Apleadina II, Chaldean nemesis of two Assyrian kings, had finally died in exile in Elam, his dreams of Babylonian independence unfulfilled. But for now, Sennacherib had more immediate concerns. The Judean rebellion, fostered by Egypt, had spread to the Levantine coast, and now included the Phoenician city of Tyre, as well as the Philistine city-states of Ekron and Ashkelon. There were way too many things wrong with this picture. Small states must not be allowed to stand as symbols of defiance. The Egyptians must be taught that the Levant was no longer their playground, and iron and silver must continue to flow unimpeded through Phoenician ports to service the armies of Assur. Next episode, Sennacherib will lead Neo-Assyrian forces westward to confront all these troublesome issues head-on, with mixed results. While indulging his preferred role of Sennacherib the Builder whenever he can, he will find Sennacherib the Warrior called upon with disturbing frequency, primarily to confront the growing challenge of the Babylonian Elamite axis. And, since we didn't get to it this week, we'll finally witness the devastating vengeance leveled by Assyria against the ancient city of Babylon. All this next time on The Ancient World.